Welcome to the IEEE Future Networks podcast series, Podcast with the Experts, an IEEE Future Directions digital studio production. Despite 5G's potential and favorable economics, deployment of the technology is proving challenging for a variety of reasons. In this episode, David Wachowski, co-chair, Deployment Working Group INGR, leads a discussion with David Young, CIO for the City of Lincoln and Lancaster County, Nebraska, and Brendan Carr, Commissioner of the FCC. They share their insights on 5G deployment challenges and offer possible solutions in building out the next generation wireless infrastructure. Thanks for joining us today. Our podcast is going to deal with the topic of government and the intersection with technology and the intersection with wireless deployments. Uh, I'm extremely excited to be joined today by two people who are leaders in that area. Uh, David Young, who is the Chief Information Officer for the City of Lincoln, Nebraska, the Vice Chair of the Broadband Deployment Advisory Committee at the Federal Communications Commission, and my co-chair at the Deployment Working Group with IEEE Future Networks. We're also joined by Commissioner Brendan Carr from the Federal Communications Commission. Welcome to both of you. Thanks. Thank you, David. The deployment of wireless technology in our modern world is a very interesting scenario because we're talking about the deployment of private networks that are funded by the wireless industry. But increasingly, those sites are deployed on public property in the public rights of way. And so this creates an interesting dynamic. The current wireless generation, 4G, accounts for almost 5% of our national GDP. 5G, the next generation of technology, will involve investment of up to $275 billion by some estimates in a network that will serve the residents of the United States. But again, that technology is going to be deployed on largely public infrastructure. So this creates an interesting dynamic because what we have then is the private industry and local governments or agencies that have to then interact. So in a sense, I think this is pretty unique. When we think about the level of investment that will be made in 5G, I think the numbers are really compelling. $275 billion per the Accenture 5G report in 2020 dollars is more than the United States government spent on the Apollo space program. And it approaches the level that the United States government spent on the interstate highway system. So it represents the single largest private investment in public serving infrastructure that we've ever seen. Commissioner Carr, you, you agree with those statements? Well, thank you so much, you know, for the opportunity to join you on the podcast. And I think, you know, securing U.S. leadership in 5G and accelerating the build out of high speed, high capacity networks is a national imperative. And so when we look across the country as to how do we create a regulatory playing field that's going to incentivize builds, not just in New York, not just in San Francisco, but in Lincoln, Nebraska, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and 
where I was uh, a week or so ago in Defiance County, Ohio. Um, we have been looking at a great challenge there is driving down the cost of building out this internet infrastructure and speeding up the permitting process. So we've engaged at the federal level and really learned from lessons of our state and local counterparts about some rules of the road that are gonna make sense for incentivizing investments. So we've built on a lot of those state and local laws and uh, put those in place at the federal level. And since we've done that, we've seen a pretty dramatic acceleration in terms of the build out of internet infrastructure. So we're really pleased with the results that we're seeing. Um, but I think you're right, at the end of the day, there's always gonna be some tension between you know, federal rules that incentivize investment and maintaining state and local control. And I'll be the first to say that not, not every state and local official uh, agrees with the balance we've struck at the FCC. But if you look at aesthetics in particular, we've you know, really tried to make sure that uh, control over aesthetics uh, is something that stays with state or local officials. At the end of the day, if an ugly small cell goes up, um, it's the local official that's going to get pulled aside at the grocery store or the post office and hear about it. So we got to make sure that they have um, an appropriate level of say and control over those issues. Thank you. I appreciate those comments. Um, David Young, what are, what are your thoughts? Uh, you know, I agree, David, and thank you again for having me. And I think I, I agree with a lot of what is uh, being said. Uh, yes, this is an expensive investment. Uh, yes, it is important. Um, I think where the challenge for many municipalities lies is making sure that this important uh, national imperative infrastructure is available to everybody, uh, not just the wealthy, right? Um, when we're deploying in Lincoln, Nebraska, or New York, um, and we're having conversations about aesthetics, um, there's a large percentage of the state of Nebraska, there's a large percentage of the state of New York uh, that still doesn't have 4G coverage. Uh, I, I think that the challenge that we're looking at is making sure that everybody has coverage. And how do we balance that? Um, yes, speed is important. Uh, yes, good rules of the road are important. Um, but full coverage is also important. And I think that that's one of the challenges that we think that uh, there's an area of interest, uh, both at the state and local level and with the FCC, to make sure that everybody is covered. Um, it's a huge investment, I'll agree. Uh, I think it is important that we do it and that we do it right. And so more collaborative planning around uh, where the infrastructure is going to go, what the schedule for building out the infrastructure in, in every state, uh, and uh, collaboration on um, making sure that not only do we have mobile internet, um, but fixed internet. Uh, one of the, the challenges we have seen with COVID-19, uh, with the learn from home program and work from home programs, is fixed networks uh, in many areas are not keeping up with demand. Uh, and having conversations around upping the broadband definition, you know, 25.3 is an old definition. And I think we need to be looking at asynchronous uh, definitions so we can have video conferences like this and, and podcasts uh, so people can work from home. And I think we need to have a conversation around that as well. Uh, there's a lot of hype around 5G. We are excited to see it in our cities, in our states. Uh, but the challenge is, uh, in many areas, we still have DSL at the house. And so 
how do we have that conversation? How do we decouple the hype of 5G and, and really invest in a discussion around coverage for everybody on mobile and quality fixed internet uh, that in the new reality we live in uh, is available for people to learn and work from home? Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, I think your your comment about your comment about broadband to the home is is really interesting because there are a few things about five G that I think are probably not well understood. Previous generations of cellular have focused primarily on improving the user handset experience. It's really been about the phone. Uh, you know whether that was adding text messaging or mobile web and mobile email in the 3G world, then we have the smartphone era with, uh, with the apps and the rich information that we obtain through 4G phone. Looking at 5G, it's really not about the phone. It's, to a large extent, it's more about the things that 4G can't do and, and the economics of uh, deployment. You know, during the recent FCC forum on Open RAN, a comment was made that really resonated with me, which was, this is really more about economics of deployment. It's really more about dollars per bits per area or per user than, than it is about making your smartphone faster. And sure, we'd all love to have our phones be faster, but the, the thing that's really critical is reducing the amount of spend that the industry has to make to cover more people. So in, in other words, if you reduce the amount of spend, you then have more available funds to invest in these areas that are currently underserved or unserved. Uh, so, I, so I do think that 5G creates the economics that are necessary for better deployments. Uh, but to your point, David Young, I think we we do need to make sure that we are thinking about those unserved areas because there are a lot of, even in Silicon Valley where I live, it, it is, I mean, if you go 20 miles away from from the core of Silicon Valley, you're, you're in the Santa Cruz Mountains and there's often not a lot of broadband in those areas. Uh, I also think that the application of 5G as a fixed broadband technology is, is very exciting. The, the idea that you could use 5G to deploy where you, you would have wanted previously to deploy fiber, and can you approximate a fiber performance? Uh, you know, we had fiber installed at our home, and it, it took the installer four and a half hours to put it in. Uh, that's just not a sustainable level of OPEX for, for most companies. So being able to hand somebody uh, a home install kit that would get them 5G fixed and it would only take maybe a half an hour to put that in. It is a, there's just a lot of, there's a lot of economic value in doing that because then, then those, those resources can be spread over, over a wider population. No, I think the point yeah. that um, the, when you talk about the relationship between the, we talk about the relationship between the smartphone and the network. I think you you really nailed it there, which is to say, the three G and four G networks were sort of custom built to support 
smartphones. And 4G was all about the app economy, uh, the introduction of the iPhone in supporting that device. And when you look at the 5G networks, uh, attaching your smartphone to that network is really gonna be the least interesting thing that you are gonna attach to a 5G network. And that's a massive shift. And so when I think about 5G from the consumer perspective, um, you know, I really sort of put it in three buckets. The first bucket is the smartphone bucket, right? Everything that you do on your smartphone today is gonna be faster and that's gonna be great. But again, that's the least interesting. The second piece of it is what you touched on as well, which is high speed home internet. You know, up to now, your only choice for uh, super high speed in-home service was a fixed or wired connection. And we've made a lot of progress in the country with building out that infrastructure. But now with 5G, you can finally deliver wirelessly that same experience that before you had to have a, a cable or fiber connection. So that's going to be very disruptive to the in-home broadband market in terms of increasing competition, closing the digital divide, driving down prices. And that's you know one of the things I saw out in Defiance County, Ohio, just a week or two ago was a home that's getting fixed 5G service. They're getting better speeds uh, and better prices compared to the fixed service they had before. And the third bucket that I described to people really is this new wave of innovations that we can really only scratch at the surface of right now. And to describe that dynamic, I really tell people to, to think back 10 years on their own life uh, before we had 4G and the app economy that rode on it and how you, you know, got across town back then, right? You had to call a number or hail a taxi cab, pay exorbitant rates. Uh, and so many rides people just didn't go on because of the friction in that process. And now we have Uber and Lyft right on our smartphone and we can call a car right to wherever we are. That was enabled by this uh, 4G app economy. And we're gonna see some of that same stuff happen with 5G where we can't even see it. There are pain points in your daily life today. You may not even recognize as pain points, but this 5G network is gonna support a solution to it. And I think some of the answer to that is gonna be artificial reality and virtual reality. Um, I think those innovations demand the high speed, high performance of a 5G network. And so, you know, one idea that I've thrown out there to try to give people a sense is grocery shopping, right? So I, uh, I dislike going grocery shopping. It takes time. And in this COVID era, obviously it requires interacting with people. And there's some online options today for ordering and having stuff delivered, but it doesn't replicate that experience. For me, I like to be in my grocery store, walk the aisles, see the actual product. And now with an AR or VR headset, pretty soon you'll be able to sit on your couch, put on an AR VR headset powered by 5G, and you'll be transported to your local grocery store that you can see the aisles that you're used to seeing, walk it the way you wanna walk it. With haptics, you can pick up a piece of fruit, feel it uh, and see if you want it, throw it in your virtual basket and it can be delivered. So I think you're exactly right that these networks have up to now been custom built for smartphones and apps. Um, and that's gonna be the least interesting part of 5G. It's gonna be this new wave of innovations that solve pain points in our lives. And that's why we gotta make sure every single community has a fair shot at this, not just the biggest cities. And we're making good progress there, but there's more to go. We're, we're not uh, waving the mission accomplished flag at this point. I was pleased, and I'll, and I'll close this part with this, that when we approved the transaction of Sprint and T-Mobile merging, one of the conditions there that they committed to was building out 5G to 99% of the US. Uh, and I think to, to David Young's point, uh, that's the key. We, we gotta make sure that there is access to these networks everywhere. Yeah, I, I would agree with uh, what 
what you said about, you know, the often the comment that I make about 5G is the CEOs of the companies that are really going to make 5G a part of our daily life are probably still in high school or maybe in college. But so the, the innovation that will occur there has yet to it. We, we don't even know. I mean, if you, and to your point, uh, Commissioner Carr, if, if you look back a few years, no one could have envisioned the app economy and all of the things that 4G enabled. So 4G really made that app economy possible, but we didn't create the 4G network because we knew that the app economy was out there. We created the 4G network and then the economy created itself. Um, and so that that is, I believe, what will happen with 5G is, is that we will have this network and people smarter than I am will figure out a way to make it really valuable in, into, um, into our daily lives. And, and we'll look back 10 years from now and wonder how we ever got along without the augmented reality shopping application or, or some other application of 5G. Um, David Young, what are your thoughts? I agree. I agree a lot of what's being said. I think that, and, and this is a common theme, you know, that uh, many of us at the state and local level agree with the excitement around 5G about uh, connecting infrastructure, traffic signals, um, water lines, sewer lines, being able to monitor things uh, in an affordable way, right? There's, there's, there's no business model that we can make that building fiber to every manhole to monitor uh, stormwater systems uh, is viable. And so 5G holds a lot of promise uh, from a municipal and a state standpoint for managing infrastructure, uh, for being able to deliver that infrastructure in a more affordable way. I think that the challenge we have is this narrative of driving down cost uh, for small cell deployments equals more small cell deployments. While it sounds intuitive in nature, the reality is when you look at Verizon and AT&T, these are some of the most profitable companies in the country. When you look at the, the profitability, gross profit for Verizon was 61% in the first two quarters of this year. AT&T, 54%. Yes, it's important that we talk about cost. Yes, it's important that we talk about um, how we can consistently deploy uh, across the entire country. I think that it gets a little bit lost and some of us have a real challenge when we're looking at shrinking municipal budgets and shrinking state budgets and, and more pressure on general revenue, uh, that the funds that are required to provide police and fire service uh, when we have uh, people telling us that uh, some of the most wealthy, profitable companies in the country can't afford to deploy uh, at the same rates that we, as municipalities, are required to purchase this property. So when, we, when the city goes out to purchase right-of-way, uh, we're required to get appraisals for that property, three appraisals. And, and we're required by law to buy that property for market value. Uh, but now we are saying that in order to have these exciting things that we have to take that property that was purchased with taxpayer funds at appraised value 
and give it away to subsidize private companies that are extremely profitable in order to uh, have this new technology. Uh, it's a challenge for us. Uh, and I think that we can honestly disagree. We can agree about, yes, it's exciting. Yes, we want it. Yes, we want it to be streamlined. Uh, yes, we want information out there that helps benefit uh, municipalities and states have conversations with private carriers and with infrastructure owner operators. I think all of those are laudable goals. Uh, but when we get down to it, this narrative of uh, if they spend $2,000 deploying in Lincoln, uh, will they not be able to, uh, to deploy in uh, Myrna, Nebraska? Uh, it just doesn't hold water when you really look at it. And that, that's the challenge. Uh, and I think that, you know, we're, we're moving past a lot of that and, and having these conversations. But I think that that's uh, where a lot of these lawsuits are taking us, is that, yes, aesthetics are control. And I really can commend the FCC for having the BDAC and for, for getting, eliciting, uh, a lot of input from both industry and government partners. Um, but on this one issue, I think we have a, a sincere disagreement. Well, fair enough. Uh, yeah, certainly they're going to be uh, in, in an environment where you have the private sector and the public sector interacting um, financial topics are, are likely going to be contentious. And, and I think that uh, we're, I, think, I guess we're iterating through the process now. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, Portland versus United States and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals decision on, on that case, um, TBD on, on what happens next, but we will, we will eventually arrive at, at, a, at a negotiated uh, agreement that, that I guess will be acceptable to all uh, to all parties and, and so that that then hopefully we get through that and, and then we're able to move into uh in, into a more aggressive uh, deployment posture certainly the deployment has been occurring uh, as commissioner carr pointed out and, and certainly we we hear in the news every day about about new uh, new networks i i guess i wanted to to ask both of you how do we do a better job at communicating the value of 5G to the public? What, what, is the, what is the way to get that risk reward trade-off discussion to show more reward uh, versus the, the potential per sort of the perceived risks that are in the public? Uh, Commissioner Carr, maybe you wanna comment on that. And we talk about you know, state and local approval process. There's a lot of pushback that local officials get from people that believe wrongly that there are health and safety issues surrounding 5G and it, and it legitimately plays a role in slowing down some of the build out out there. Dozens upon dozens of scientific, epidemiological and other studies that show that this is safe. In fact, the FDA not too long ago published a 100 plus page review of RF studies uh, that had been released from 2008 to 2018 that looked at health effects uh, including tumors, leukemia, and other issues, uh, other cancers, and none demonstrated adverse effects from uh, RF exposure at levels encountered by cell phone users. And you can 
see this in your own experience in the real world since you know the late 1980s cell phone use uh, across all technologies you know 1g 2g 3g 4g has increased at a pace that resembles a hockey stick and over that same period of time the incidences of brain and other nervous system cancers have actually decreased so there is no correlation at all i think if you look at the fcc the fda and health and safety experts um, we're all constantly reviewing the relevant science on this and uh, taking a look at uh, the results. So we got to continue to do our part. Industry has to do its part. Because um, I think, you know, when you look at David Young and others, it really does come up at the state and local level. Excellent. Thank you. David Young, do you have comments? I mean, you deal directly with public in Lincoln and so you have you have direct experience with the kind of feedback that you're going to get from residents and that Commissioner Carr has talked about. The challenge is how do we how do we communicate uh, to the broadest possible audience those things that Commissioner Carr, uh, you, David, myself, we all understand and believe to be facts. And how do we how do we communicate those things in a way that's consumable uh, by the general population? Um, when you go and you search 5G uh, effects, uh, the, all of the fake news, if you will, comes to the top of the search results. You know, not the quality studies and in, in a in a executive summary format that says, you know, the, the consensus is there is no challenge here, um, and what we need to do is communicate that better. Um, but I did want to pick up on something you said earlier that around broadband and partisanship. My experience has been that um, this is an area where both uh, both parties can agree, uh, making sure that we have broadband available for everybody, uh, making sure that it's uh, deployed in a reasonable, uh, expeditious way, efficient way. Um, I know in in uh, my city that uh, when we we went when we bring small cell agreements forward, when we bring fiber leasing agreements forward, uh, these are roundly supported by both parties. And, and so I, my hope is that this is an area we can get agreement on. That may be pie in the sky hope these days, but uh, <laughs> it is my hope. And, uh, you know, as, as I discussed earlier, um, we agree with the vast majority. Uh, I personally do. I know a lot of my compatriots agree the vast majority of what's trying to be accomplished uh, in the small sale area. Uh, it, it's a few minor disagreements and we're not letting those disagreements get in the way of deployment. Uh, we want those things deployed. Uh, we want the technology available. Uh, we are very excited about it uh, in a lot of areas, but, but this communication around uh, the effects of 5G um, definitely is lacking a coordinated response from all parties. And I think that's really what, uh, as the commissioner said, would really be valuable here is that industry, state and local leaders, uh, um, organizations like the IEEE uh, communicating with one voice, if, if that's even possible, that, you know, 5G is not a, a health issue. I, I agree with that completely. I, I think that um, it's important that we continue to foster uh, the discussions and make sure that the industry and local governments are communicating. And that's, uh, of course, one of the things that I've been doing in the Silicon Valley 
through joint venture Silicon Valley and a nonprofit organization that I'm part of is trying to convene around this topic. And while sometimes the conversation may be contentious, I think it's better than everybody just throwing emails back and forth at each other and never seeing, you know, people on the other side of the table. So I think uh, of course, and, you know, the COVID world, we're, uh, we're not getting together face to face like we were, which I think is unfortunate, mm -hmm. but it is critical that we continue to foster that interaction because at the end of the day, um, you know, people who are going to apply for these permits are going to have to interact with, uh, with the city uh, employees and uh, the local government officials and the agencies who are going to review them. And so I think getting to the point where those are familiar faces is helpful. Uh, one of the other things that I think is really important, and I wanna ask my guests today for their thoughts on this is, I mean, cities, local governments have become very competent at dealing with roads and sidewalks and traffic lights and um, you know police and fire and parks uh, all, all the all the things that go along with what we would consider to be a traditional local government role uh, telecommunications is not especially wireless telecommunications is not something that they have traditionally been tasked with doing so there's a development of expertise there that I believe needs to occur. I also think that because local government and agency staff are going to be the ones fielding those queries from residents for the most part, that it's important that they really become educated about this topic. Um, so when we, back in 2016, I, I wrote Bridging the Gap uh, as a handbook for uh, local governments because I was getting calls back then saying, you know, what's a small cell? And, you know, what's dark fiber? I mean, these are, these are literally calls that I received from local governments. And so we, we felt that it was important that we provide some sort of educational materials that would help with that. But, uh, but I think it goes beyond just providing a, a handbook. I think there actually needs to be proactive education of local government on the topic so that they can respond when, the, when a constituent resident comes to them and says, hey, I'm worried about this 5G, that they can reference those studies. Uh, they can reference the body of material that's out there. Uh, but the question becomes is how do we, how do we accomplish that? And so um, I'd ask Commissioner Carr, what, what are your thoughts on educating city staff, local governments, agencies on, on telecommunications? How do we build that competency? You know, I think there's been a lot of work over the last couple of years that has gone in at the state and local level to ramp up to what we're uh, seeing right now in terms of small cell uh, applications. I think a lot of what we did at the FCC uh, was to look to state and local governments that were really leading the way. They were updating their ordinances. They were uh, getting their permitting processes in place, even with COVID-19. That was disruptive to a lot of, uh, obviously to, to, to much of what we do in this country. And the state and local government processes 
uh, not immune to that. And we saw a lot of state and local governments, you know, quickly moving to more online processes where they weren't able to work or engage with cures in person. So I think uh, the sophistication uh, in the approaches taken by state and local governments have been uh, moving ahead pretty quickly. And again, we sort of build on a lot of their ideas that resulted in a you know, significant uptick in small cell applications. So I think whatever learning curve was there a couple of years ago, I think state and local governments are uh, at this point very competently uh, reviewing and approving small cell and other permitting applications. And they're doing so at a, at a pace and on a scale that uh, is multiples beyond what we were seeing just three years ago. Certainly things have gotten better uh, than, than they were, you know, say, five years ago when I, when I took on this role. Um, it's, in, my, in my experience, I think there's a, there's a fairly wide range of competencies, and it really seems to depend upon the size of the city. Um, obviously, a large city is capable of hiring somebody who can just focus on telecom. And they may even bring somebody in who has a, a telecom background. Uh, whereas a, a small town that maybe has a staff of six uh, probably doesn't have that. So they're going to be looking for those outside resources to come in. Um, but they're, the more we can educate them, I think the easier it's going to be for them. Uh, David Young, you, you deal directly with your city and I presume you, you are a leader for cities around you on, on some of these topics. And so uh, what are your thoughts about building competency and wireless telecommunications in local government? I'll agree with the commissioner. I think that uh, states and uh, cities and communities have gotten a lot better over the last three, three to five years. Um, the challenge is uh, the top 250 cities in the country by population uh, they probably have the budget, they probably have the ability uh, to hire somebody technically proficient in telecom to look at these applications. I think the challenge is there's 19,000 cities, towns and communities, villages in the country. How do we assist those other communities that are not large enough uh, or have enough budget to warrant uh, having a full-time network engineer or telecom specialist on hand? Uh, I think. Uh, one of the areas of agreement that uh, industry, city and county representatives and the FCC could come to is creating a repository of best practices. What, what should you as a plan reviewer be looking at in a small cell application? What should you be looking at uh, as, a, as a construction inspector uh, when you go to a small cell site to look at construction? I think that common set of best practices, uh, even when it comes to macro towers, uh, because we're still going to be deploying macro towers across the country uh, for the foreseeable future, uh, is an area that we could all agree uh, would speed up deployment. Uh, creating that document, those documents and distributing them in a way that allows cities to uh, provide this information, uh, webinars and things like uh, put on by industry or by local government partners to say these are the best practices, right? I, I think that would speed up deployment and, and would be beneficial as we continue to deploy uh, all broadband across the country. So it, it, I guess the question would then become relative to, to your comments. Uh, David, 
is who who should maintain or who should create that right i mean is this is this an ieee activity or who, what's the right way to to move that cuz cuz by the way we've had that exact same query from cities in silicon valley i mean i get this question all the time people say oh do you have any examples do you have do you have a model ordinance do you have a model mla and, and we we typically refer them to cities that are similar to their size or profile so you know if if a if a city in the east bay of san francisco were to ask the question i would look at a city maybe in the south bay to say well why don't you take a look at what they did uh, but that that occurs at, at a local level i think what you're describing is something that, that would occur at a national level so um, whether it's just collecting a database of example ordinances or aesthetic standards. Uh, so, I mean, is this something that the IEEE should do or, or how, what's the, who's the right organization to, to create what you've described? Because I think it's a need and I've heard the need, but I don't know how to go about creating it. David, it's a great question. Um, you know, interest, right? Where Where is the interest? And I think that, uh, you know, the FCC has a lot of interest in, and rightfully so, in, in speeding up deployment um, and making sure that this infrastructure is available. Uh, I think the industry also has that same uh, interest and cities and counties uh, really have an interest in uh, making sure they protect the public property. Uh, the, the right of way where these, uh, where this infrastructure is being deployed is is home to gas lines, water lines, sewer lines. There's a lot of other infrastructure that uses the public right-of-way as well. And so uh, I, I think that there would be value uh, in a collaboration. I think IEEE is a great uh, organization to do something like this. Um, uh, and, and to be clear, what I, I'm looking at is, you know, what are some best practices around plan review? What are some best practices around construction? Um, yeah, a database of, of all municipal model codes and things like that. And I think the FCC and the BDAC has, has done some of that lifting uh, to create a municipal model code that um, can be edited, cleaned up, depending on uh, what the size of your community is. Um, uh, for, for my focus and, and where I think that uh, we're at at this stage really is, you know, how do we how do we educate those plan reviewers and construction inspectors uh, so that uh, once to get this permit issued quickly and to get the construction uh, moving forward how do we, how do we do that and i think the ieee would be a, a good home for that uh, i'm not volunteering the ieee for anything but uh, <laughs> i think uh, uh, that would be good uh, i i also think that uh, uh, candidly the bdac has a lot of those interests there's, there's a lot of uh, members of the bdac who uh, potentially could weigh in and, and provide a lot of value to that discussion. You know, how do, how do you do that? Commissioner Carr, you uh, have some thoughts on that? I think it's great if we can continue to, to find ways to collaborate. And I think, uh, you know, look, at the end of the day, a lot of the steps that we've taken at the FCC um, are not to be prescriptive from a federal level, but to enable the private sector and local governments to have reasonable good faith discussions about how to move forward. And I think uh, the private sector has to be reasonable in their approach. And I think uh, cities and local governments um, with the guardrails that we've put in place have to be reasonable 
on their approach. But at the end of the day, uh, this really has to be solved by you know, compromises and negotiations at the local level taking place within a reasonable framework. I think that's what we've tried to structure at the federal level. I think that's something that can be built on in terms of some of the expertise that's needed at, uh, in some of the smaller communities. This has been a great conversation. Really appreciated both of you taking time from your schedules to be part of this today. Uh, excellent conversation, excellent uh, survey of the topics. I hope we'll have a chance to communicate again in the future. Thank you both for being part of the podcast today. David, Dick. Commissioner, thanks for having me as well. I really appreciate the, the, the topic and the, the importance. It was a good conversation. Thanks very much for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate the conversation. Thank you for listening to this edition of the IEEE Future Networks podcast with the experts. Discover more about the IEEE Future Networks initiative and inquire about participating in this effort by visiting our web portal at futurenetworks.ieee.org.